to those who gave birth this year and to those who were pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we celebrate you. To all the moms who are in the trenches with the little ones every day and wear the badge of food and other stains, we appreciate you. To those who lost a child this year, to those who experienced loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, we mourn with you. To those who walked the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes and prods and tears and disappointment, we walk with you. To those who lived through driving tests and medical tests and overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate you. And to those who have disappointment and heartache and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your mother, we acknowledge your experience. And on this Mother's Day, we walk with you. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. Those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, and yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. (laughs) To those who place children up for adoption, we commend you for selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. To those who are single and long to be mothering your own children, we mourn that life maybe not has turned out the way you longed for it to be. Foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we, the church, need you. And on this Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, so I'm grateful for the warriors in our midst. We are better for having you. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. I reminded our 9 o'clock folks that a big part of my job as a pastor, every time I go up here on Sunday mornings, is to remind you of what you already know. I'm sure there's Sundays when you come in and you hear insights and truths, and you're like, wow, that was a revelation or that really changed how I thought about things. But a lot of times what we try and do here is I, if I do my job, I just step aside, and as many times as possible, I will simply point to that cross and remind you of what you already know, what I already know. And this sermon series that we've been on, Life Interruptions, is particularly, I think, meaningful or particularly relevant to what I'm talking about right here, about being reminded of truths we know, because a lot of truths that we're covering are things that we, we, we know to be true in our heads, and maybe they haven't quite captured our hearts. So we've been saying that when we go through life interruptions, big and small, the two primary questions that most of us are prone to ask is, why is this happening to me, and when is this going to end? Those are natural. Those are, I guess, understandable. Some of us maybe don't struggle with the why, and we're okay with the why. We go, when? When is this going to end? And we've said this sermon series, and this is challenging, but to maybe reframe the questions, not just why and when, but to ask these two questions, right? God, what are you wanting to do in me in the midst of this interruption? And God, what are you wanting to do through me in the midst of this interruption? What are you wanting to do in me, and what are you wanting to do through me in the midst of this interruption or interruptions? 
And we said this truth last week. What we will find oftentimes when we dig in is this overwhelming truth that, that is just hard to come to grasp. But boy, our lives will be radically transformed if we were to. And that is this, that God's silence is not his absence. And that his hiddenness is not his impotence. God's silence is not his absence. His hiddenness is not his impotence. And this powerful truth that oftentimes when God seems to be the most silent and most hidden, it's at those times that God is sometimes most at work in us. Mm. So what this sermon series brings to mind are these central truths and questions that force us to essentially fundamental things. Like, do you really trust and believe that a sovereign, loving God oversees every minute of your life? Do you really believe that his grace is sufficient for you every day? Do you really believe that the gospel not only saves us, but it sustains us and strengthens us during life interruptions when we're confused and anxious? Do you really believe, as CC and, 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 and the worship team led us, that at the end of all this, that Jesus is enough for me? Hmm? See, life interruptions force us to ask these questions, you guys. And what I'm coming to realize is this. I'm coming to realize that God is far less concerned with my comfort than he is with my transformation. That God is far less concerned about the fact that I live a life of ease and comfort, but that he is more concerned about the fact that you and I become more like Jesus every day. Hmm? And the sermon series causing me to Remember that sometimes God in his mercy will shake my confidence in me so that I could put my ultimate hope and confidence in him. Life interruptions. Sometimes they come in the form of temptations. Temptations. I know that, you know, most of you can't relate to temptations. So let me tell you what that's about. So temptations have many faces, actually, and they look in different ways. And not a single planet walking on, uh, a single person walking on the face of the planet is unaware or inexperienced with temptations. Furthermore, we know from Scripture that there's only one person to walk the planet who was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. And his name is Jesus, right? But temptation is inevitable in a fallen world. You can't escape it. And today we're going to look at what temptations have to do with life interruptions. Mm. The text is Genesis 39. Genesis 39. So we've been talking about Joseph, and we're looking at, we can't go through 15 chapters of Genesis because it'll take me two years. Uh, we, we, could, we could take five weeks to look at some of the highlights, right? And so we're looking at one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, and that is when Joseph gets tempted. Do you all know this story? Okay, there's a lot to unpack. So let's dig in, okay? Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt previously on Life Interrupted, if you weren't here with us. In Genesis 37, Jacob's family is awaiting eruption, volcanic eruption, because it's a toxic, dysfunctional family led by a passive father named Jacob. Joseph's brothers hate him because he is the favored child. And at the end, their, their anger, resentment, jealousy erupts as they take their brother, who, by the way, 17 years old, is turning into a lying, egomaniac, cruel, deceitful person. And they strip him of his clothes. They throw him into a pit. And instead of killing him, they decide to sell him, of course, to merchants who are going down to Egypt. So that's where we are today. Joseph had been taken out of Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Captain of the guard, we think chief of security. Uh-uh. Captain of the guard is another word that's literally used to describe the Babylonian general who completely destroys Jerusalem in 2 Kings 25. In other words, captain of the guard, equivalent to commander of the armed forces. Joseph is in the center, commander armed forces, the most powerful man in the most powerful country of the known world at the time. Joseph finds himself in the center of power. Question is, 
How does one use power? And there are two very different ways to use power. And by the way, do we live in a time in which it's relevant to ask the question, how does, don't think about somebody else, I'm talking to you, okay? Is it relevant today, church? For a Christian to ask the question, does it matter how you use whatever power you have? Good Lord, good Lord. Is there a more relevant, pertinent time than now for Christians to seriously ask, what does a kingdom person do with power? We're going to get to that in a minute. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of the, his Egyptian master. Joseph is not only adjusting to his new environment, he is flourishing. Why? One reason, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph is successful because the Lord is with Joseph. Luck has nothing to do with it. And I said this morning, if you have any level of success in your life, guess who you have to give credit to? Some of you all know what I'm This makes all the difference in the world. I'll get to that about how you use power, how you perceive whatever power. Is God behind every success? Or do you go, no, 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 no. I pulled myself by the straps. I worked hard. Verse 3, when his master saw that the Lord was with him. In other words, Joseph doesn't have to tell Potiphar that God is with him. His master, his pagan Egyptian master, is able to see God in Joseph's life. And the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. I don't want you to miss this. Give me like a minute or two. Joseph's Egyptian pagan master, who doesn't know God at all, in a pagan society that doesn't recognize God, is able to see the living God in Joseph's life. How? Listen to this. He sees the evidence of his faith in his life and in his work. Do you know how powerful your life and your work is for kingdom witness? Do you know that people are watching you and me? And let me ask you a question. Do people around us see the living God in us because of how we live, full of integrity and character, and how we work? Don't dismiss this. The watching world goes, can I see the living God with you by the evidence of what you claim? Mm. He makes him his attendant as a result. What is attendant? Again, you and I think of like, you know, uh, uh, personal assistant. But that word attendant is used to describe Joshua and his relationship to Moses. In other words, Joseph is becoming the COO of this large estate. Verse Potiphar put him in charge of his household for, and he entrusted everything he owned. From, five, from the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Nice life, eh? Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. There are four dudes in the entire Old Testament that's described as he was well-built and handsome. Do you know who they are? Joseph was one of them. Who are the other three? David was the other one. Who are the other two? Somebody else says Samson this morning, too. Like, nah, he didn't make the cut. But he probably had really good hair, is what I said. Oh, the other two? are Saul and Absalom. You know, it's interesting. The story didn't end so well for those two, did it? Verse 7. And after a while, his master's wife took note of Joseph and said, Will you come to bed with me? Nah. That's not how she said it. Will you come to bed with me? Two words in Hebrew. Literally, two words. They're both imperatives or commands. I quote Potiphar's wife. Joseph, sex now. Literally in Hebrew, sex now. Let me pause here for a second. 
You remember when we began this series, I said this. I said, when we are going through life transitions and interruptions, especially painful, difficult ones, we are far more temptable during that time than other times. When you and I are going through life interruptions, we're far more vulnerable to temptation and sin than other times. There's something in you, something in me that goes, you know what? Things aren't working out. I've been screwed. Sometimes God, others. I've been done wrong, so I'm going to do wrong. Listen. Listen. If you're somebody right now going, I'm going to throw away my character. I'm going to throw away my convictions. Because screw God, screw whoever. I'm just, I am gently and yet firmly pleading with you. Do not throw away your character. Do not throw away your convictions. If you do, you will just come back right to where you began, except with scars. That's what sin does every single time. It's not worth it to throw away your character and to throw away your convictions. What does Joseph do? Three words. But he refused. I grew up thinking, remember, I shattered this notion last night. Joseph was this some super spiritual person, you know? So when temptation came, he was like, no. <laughs> or, or, or there's a hedge of protection around Joseph. Get that out of your mind. This is a young man in his 20s who has gone through a really difficult time. He said no. He refused. He stared her down and said, nah. You might totally miss this. Let me just pause for a second and see the first temptation. You think this is about sex, and it is, and we'll get to that. But you know what else this is about? The first temptation is a temptation about power. There are two people at the center of power, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Do you see the difference in the way they go about using their power? Potiphar's wife is completely corrupted and co-opted by the power structure she lives in. Her posture towards life is, I get what I want when I want it, and nobody stands in my way. What does Joseph do? Do you notice how many times the word bless others, bless others came? What is Joseph doing with the power he has? He's using it to bless others. Joseph takes whatever power, an enormous power authority he has, and he's using it to bless a pagan master who does not acknowledge his God, a pagan society that does not acknowledge his God. Joseph is using that power to bless others. Two-minute sidebar, and then I'll come back to this. One. Unfortunately, I grew up in the kind of church environment that said this. If you really want God to use you, be a pastor, be a missionary, be an evangelist, etc. I grew up in an environment that said that if God really got to use you, if administer your skills, business skills, then go into the church world. If you could communicate really well, then become a preacher. The problem with that is when you look at scripture, who is God mightily using to bless an entire? It's a businessman. Why is this important? Do you know what our culture and society needs more than anything else right now? I'm going to tell you right here, especially in this country. We don't need any more pastors. We don't need any more missionaries. We don't need more people to go into spiritual work. We need people who will embrace this reality that whatever they do in their jobs, they have a kingdom call to make an impact in their world for the gospel. Can I get an amen? We need more lawyers, engineers, doctors, and I'm talking to you. We need more nurses. We need more street sweepers who will look at their job and go, this is kingdom ministry, and I'm going to do this for the sake of Jesus. Our culture needs more than anybody else, artists, chefs, I don't care what you do, who will utilize their platform in their world for the kingdom. All parts of creation has fallen because of sin, social, cultural, physical, every way. In order for it to be redeemed, we need Christians in every nook and cranny of our culture. You will hear this from me every single week. Why? That's the only way we will win the city for the gospel and our culture for the gospel. Can I get an amen? 
Look at, look at Joseph. You know who Joseph is? He is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. I'm going to use your descendant to bless the nations. Think about who Joseph is. The first person that God uses to bless the nations is Joseph. He's not a preacher. He's not a missionary. He's not an evangelist. He's not leading a Bible study. He is a businessman and later a government official who will initiate a hunger relief program to save nations and a family. Why? Listen, because he knew how to use power. He wasn't used by power, but he used his power. He wasn't co-opted and corrupted by power. Use his power. Church, look at the world we live in. Good Lord, look at our culture and our society. It is right in front of our faces. What happens when you use whatever power authority you have? Let's look at Jesus. Help us, Lord, as Carlton likes to say. Look at Jesus. Because you have and I have this false notion that power and servanthood can't coexist. You couldn't be more wrong. You go, I don't want power. I want to be a servant. Or if you have, look at Jesus. John chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Does Jesus have power? Yes, that will be yes. He has tons and tons. Look at what he does, though. They come from God, was returning to God. So he got up from his meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a bath and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Verse 15, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Power is not the opposite of servanthood. Servanthood, flourishing of others, is the very purpose of why you have power. Oh, church. Oh, church. A kingdom person says, whatever power I have as a result of my education, money, my job, my race, whatever power I have, it's been given not for my benefit, but for the flourishing of others. A kingdom person doesn't go, what can I use this and lord it over myself? A kingdom person also doesn't feel guilty that you are in positions of power. Hello, anybody? But you go, how do I leverage whatever power and authority I have for the flourishing and serving of others around me, especially the most vulnerable? Come on, you guys. This city would be transformed for the gospel if every single Christian used whatever power they had for the flourishing of others and not for them. Now, there's a thousand ways to illustrate this. I don't have time for that, okay? Okay. This, you need to do this in community. Think about what this means for you in your job, in your occupation, in your classroom, in your family. Think about your education. Think about your job. Think about all of those and ask yourself, what does it mean for me to leverage whatever power I have? Can I just give you one example? This is an example you might not think of, of how we misuse power. Listen to this. Young couple moves into Chicago, Okay. And they, of course, want to buy a home. So they find a real estate agent and they go, hey, we want to buy a home. And the real estate agent asks them the question that they're trained to ask, which is, what's your take-home pay? How much you make? They tell the real estate agent. And the real estate agent, of course, says, you could buy this kind of a house and you could buy that much house. So they do. The couple moves into that neighborhood and that particular house. And, you know, they quickly realize they have very little to give to others. They come close to giving 10% to charity and to ministry and to people in need. Do you know why I say that? Do you realize how much of our power is wrapped around how much money we have? And do you know what our culture says? That money is what? It's yours. You earned it. Spend it any way you want to. Live out to the margins. Don't give it away. Live out to the margins. That's the air that you and I breathe. What does a kingdom person do? Kingdom person says, where I live... And how I live is just as important for being a follower of Jesus than attending a Bible study. Are you hearing me? Where I live, how I live, and how I pursue God's agenda with my resources is just as critical. It's a power issue. Do you realize that? Let me ask last time and then we move on. Are you using it for yourself? Or are you using it? For the flourishing of others.
with me in charge. Verse 8. My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. Nobody is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against your husband? How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against Pot? What does it say? Sin against what? Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? And we'll come back to that in a moment, okay? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, after day, after day, after day, he refused to go to bed with her. You know why I just said that? Because some of us think some temptations, if you resist it once, it'll go away. It's too much. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of us actually think, well, if I resist that once, bye-bye. If that's you, you are ripe for that temptation. It's going to get a little hot in here right now because I need to go there. I need to talk about sexual temptation. Is that okay? You don't have to remind me that I live in Chicago in 2017. You don't have to sit there and go, uh, you realize that we're, no, you don't have to remind me. So I'm going to go there and it's going to get uncomfortable. Is that okay? Because I'm about to tell you things that you might not hear out there, but you will hear it in here, which is the reason why you come. Amen? Joseph says it's wicked and it's a sin, to which most of us, yeah, of course, she's married to Potiphar. Nah, that's a part of it. It's wicked and sin because she's married to somebody else. But Joseph says, it's wicked and sin because you're not married to me. What do I mean? You know what the biblical sex ethic says? Here it is. Bible says God designed sex for husband and wife in the context of marriage, period. It has always said that. I know this is like, are you kidding me? This is 2017. I'm telling you right now. You know what else? Can I just tell you? It's funny because when I talk to non-Christians, they go, Can't you, religions of the world, just find something to agree on for once? I'll tell you one thing they agree on. You know what they agree on? They agree on this. Three branches of Christianity. Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, Judaism, even Islam, for crying out loud, all agree that God designed sex for the context of marriage between a husband and wife. Do you know why, though? Do you know why God did that? I know some of us grew up in church, sex is bad, just say no, and it doesn't work, of course. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why, okay? God designed this beautiful thing called sex. Paul gets to it in 1 Corinthians 6, where he actually is thinking, I think, of Genesis 39. He has allusions to this. You could tell by the language. 1 Corinthians 6, 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. That's directly out of Genesis 2.24. Flee from sexual immorality. The word sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, from which you get the English word what? Pornography. But it's not what you think. Porneia was a Greek word that was literally used to describe any kind of sex outside of marriage. And listen to this. The reason why Paul says flee from it and the Bible says don't do it is this. In sex... There is one flesh union. To which you go, well, that's common sense, of course. Two bodies. No, no, no. Paul doesn't use the word body, physical body here. That's the word sarx in Greek. He uses the word soma. You know what soma means? Embodied personhood. Here's what Paul is saying. When you have sex, let me illustrate this for you. There is an intimate, intermingling and bonding and union of your body, of your mind, of your soul, of your heart, of your entire being. In sex, there is whole personhood union. Doesn't matter if it's a casual one-night stand, or a committed long-term relationship. There's a whole. God designed sex for intimacy and whole life oneness. Are you uncomfortable yet? 
Hang in there for like 10 more minutes, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Just a couple more. I, I'm designing an entire sermon series for this, by the way. I need to be quick this morning because I don't want to be late with this. God did sex for intimacy, whole life oneness. What do I mean? Let's just talk plainly, okay? You guys are used to that by now, right? When you have sex, what you're doing with your body, your soul wants to do the same thing. What you're doing with your body, your soul. In other words, when you make yourself vulnerable to somebody with your body, your soul goes, I want to make myself vulnerable to you too. When you give yourself to somebody in your body, the rest of you says, I, you were designed this way. I need and I want to give the rest of myself to you. There's no such thing as free sex. It comes with the cost. You might be able to give sex without giving love. You can't give sex without giving a part of yourself. I never thought I'd quote Cameron Diaz in the middle of my sermon, but I will. In a movie called Vanilla Sky, Cameron Diaz is talking to Tom Cruise. And of course, he's like, I don't... Here's what she says. Don't you know that when you sleep with somebody, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? When you have sex with somebody, the way that God designed this says, I need to give every other part of myself to you too. And you go, will you give the rest of yourself to me too? God designed sex so that when you physically give yourself to somebody and you've given every other part of you to that person, you experience what's called deep intimacy and soul nurture. You experience that thing where you and I go, I feel like I am fully known and fully accepted without any fear. Because I've given myself physically, but I've given everything else of my life to you, legally, permanently, exclusively. And you have done the same thing to me, and you go, this is intimate. I don't care who you are. You are sitting here, and your soul longs for that. The problem is, if you divorce your body from the rest of it, here's what it does. It works the opposite way. In other words... The one thing God gave you and me as a commitment, trust apparatus to give of ourselves to another human being, when we give ourselves physically without every part of us, it destroys that apparatus. And it becomes more and more difficult you to trust somebody. This is why when I meet with singles, at some point when they have deep trust issues, not all the time, at some point, I will ask them this question. I go, can you tell me about relationships in the past? Because when you have somebody who's given themselves physically somebody and they're not context in which they've given every other part, you know what it does? It becomes harder and harder for you to trust. And if you can't trust people, you will not know intimacy. God didn't design it to go, it's bad, it's evil. God said, I want the best for you. Why would you settle for less? Why would you settle for pseudo-intimacy of just giving your body and not giving the rest of you in the context of marriage? Oh, church. Church. How does he overcome sexual temptation? And this is so fascinating to me. Cece, did you find this? I, I, I was hugely encouraged by this. Because you think the way that Joseph goes about exercising self-control is, is he's resisting the sexual advances by, by, by the matter of his will. You think the sexual temptation goes something like this. It's bad. It's not good for you. He said, don't do it at the con. It's, I have to say no. Suppress the desires. Think about all the consequences. You think that will is in charge of the heart. It doesn't work that way. Can I ask you something? Does self-control work for you by telling yourself, this is bad, this is wrong, don't do it. Does it work? Does it work? Do you know why it doesn't work? Because the will can't be in charge of the heart. What do I mean? Joseph doesn't say it's sin against Potiphar. I know it's wrong. He says it's sin against God. What is he doing? He is not looking inside to suppress his desire for her. He's looking outside to enhance his desire for God. 
He's not just saying no, 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 no. He's finding something else that's far more beautiful to say yes, 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 yes to. You can't overcome. I don't care what kind of temptation is this. And you know it and I know it. We cannot exercise self-control by saying, will say no. You have to find something else so beautiful, so magnificent. And it captures your heart and you go, why would I want to settle for that? And by the way, there's a phenomenal example of this in the Bible. It's Joseph's daddy, actually, Jacob. There's a story about Jacob that captures this. Do you remember Genesis 29? Jacob wants Rachel, his beloved, okay? Joseph's mom, okay? And do you remember? Laban goes, I need you to work seven years of manual labor if you want my daughter. (laughs) By the way, that's what I'm going to say to anybody who comes for Sophie. I'm going to go, seven years of manual labor. (laughs) Dads, can I get an amen? Yes, Michael Emerson, yes. I'm telling you. Seven years of manual <laughs> Here's the thing. <laughs> and here's the thing. Here's what Joseph. So Joseph goes, okay, seven years, seven years. And basically there's no vacations. There's no break. There's nothing. It's seven years, seven days a week, hard manual labor. Can you imagine kind of self-control it takes for somebody to go seven years? Do you know what Jacob's key was? You see it up there. Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but why? They seemed like only a few days. Do you know why? Because Jacob wanted a lot of things, but not like he wanted Rachel. He desired many things, but not like he desired Rachel. So the seven years of self-control Easy breezy. Do you know what this means? You and I need to find a Rachel. You and I need to find something and someone that would prioritize all the other desires of our because that is such an... And we have it. We have it. His name is what? His name is Jesus. Do you realize that you want to actually have somebody, for real, for real, who looks at you, who looks at me and says, I am committed to you. I will do anything for you. And he proved it. He did it. Are you kidding me? He's on the cross. Do you think he was tempted to get off of it? Do you think he wanted to quit? Do you think there were moments where he's like, this is too hard. I don't want to. What kept him up there? Tell me. You and me. You need to find an overwhelming, overmastering desire. Again, I don't care if it's sexual temptation. That says, I find you so beautiful that all the other desires are prioritized. Singles, if I hear one more person, I, I need to be gentle. If I hear one more single come and go, if I was just married and I had really great sex, my life would be so much better. To which I go, I want you to find every single married person in our church and ask them if that's true. Do you know why? Do you know? Listen, because your longing for ultimate beauty will never be found in another human being. Your desire for ultimate love will never be found in another human being. If you don't have the spousal love of Jesus... Forget about it. Is he your Rachel? Or are you white knuckling those temptations? <laughs> going, I'm going to do it even if it kills me. It just might kill you, by the way. <laughs> Which is better? White knuckling, I got to say no. Or going, why would I want that? When he is captured. Hey, anyway, let's go on. I've spent way too long on it already. Verse 11. I need to finish. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and some of the household servants were inside. 
So she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out. Church, what did he do? He ran. Church, he didn't sit there and go, I'm going to claim me some Bible verses. <laughs> I mean, no temptation has seized you except what is coming to man. He not sitting there reasoning with fire. He what? Get the heck out. Okay, you're not convinced. Some of us in this room, I'm just going to go through these quickly. Here's how you know you're playing with fire. Sexual temptation, real quick. Anybody ever said this? My husband and my wife doesn't meet my needs like you could. Next one. You know, by doing this, you'll prove that you really love me, though. How about this one? Who will ever find out we're completely and absolutely alone and safe? And this next one? Boy, if I had every dime, if I had time for someone said this in the context of premarital counseling. We're going to get married anyway soon. Why wait? doesn't matter anyway. It matters because what? God intended it for intimacy and whole life oneness, not because if you do your best. Uh-uh. He wants the best for you. Well, this one, I'm so terribly lonely. God understands. That's why he brought you into my life. And this one, just this once, 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 just this once. And the thing is, it's never once, is it? you at the 9 o'clock service. I could have used you at the 9 o'clock service. You know, I, listen, that's the same rationale earlier. If I resist it once, it won't happen again. Are you kidding? And then last one, what's grace all about if it won't cover something as natural as this? When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has brought you in to make sport of us. He came here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. The Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Verse 20. So Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners, remember that, were confined. Can you imagine how Joseph is feeling right now? Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. How do you think he's feeling? So we come to the third and last temptation. This won't take long. It's the temptation to despair. Maybe the most difficult temptation is the temptation to despair when you've done everything right and things go wrong anyway. The greatest temptation for many of us in this room is when you've done everything right and your life blows up. See, Joseph, Genesis 37, that's on him, you could say. He's a spoiled brat. But Genesis 39, he's doing everything right. His life blows up anyway. Listen, you know what the temptation is? Let me say it, and then I'll put it up. When you're tempted to despair, what you're going to want to do is to interpret God and his promises through the lens of your circumstances. And not interpret your circumstances through the lens of God's character and promises. When you and I are despairing, the temptation is going to go, look at my life. Look at my life. And then conclude, so God is X, 
Y, and Z. Look at my life. He's unloving. Look at my life. He's unfaithful. Look at my life. He doesn't care. The temptation to despair when things are not working out is the greatest maybe temptation of them all. Can anybody relate? How do you overcome that? Do you know what's amazing about this story? Amazing about this story is if Joseph doesn't get put in prison, he doesn't meet the king's servants, the Pharaoh. Do you remember how Joseph becomes a prince of Egypt? Let me tell you. Joseph becomes a prince of Egypt because he's able to interpret a dream that the Pharaoh, the king, has that nobody else on the land can interpret. Well, how does Joseph get put in a position then to interpret this random dream that the king has? Joseph is in the same prison where the cupbearer of the king happens to be. Let me ask you something. Is that coincidence? (laughs) Be careful how you make sense of your life. Be careful how you measure God's activity, what he's up to, who he is, by looking at your current life. Can I get an amen? Be careful about interpreting who God is and his promises through the lens of your circumstances. Because if you sit there and go, then how do I know, Peter, that he is for me? How do I know that he is with me? How do I know that he loves me? I'll tell you exactly how. Because of the cross. The ultimate validation of God's character and his promises, his love for you and me, is the cross. What other demonstration of his commitment to you do you need? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Do you think that God wouldn't give you what he thinks is best for you? He who did not forsake you on the cross. Do you think he's going to forsake you because you're having a bad week? Are you hearing what I'm saying? If you go, how do I know? How do you know, Peter? I'll tell you. It's not because I'm that smart. I know because I focus on the ultimate validation of God's character and his promises. And I let God interpret my circumstances and not the other way around. How else do you go about every day? Without tempting to despair. Let me end this story. Cece, please come on up, brother. Look at this story. Look at how it is. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to everything under Joseph's care. Listen very carefully. Because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything. Does that verse sound familiar? It should. Do you know why? Because this entire story starts with, and the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success when everything was going well. It ends with his life blowing up, no fault of his own. But the story ends with, the Lord was with him and gave him success in everything. Do you know what that means? Everybody look up here. I'm done. That means that nothing and no one can derail God's quiet care and purpose for your life. How much more clear, how much more clear can God be? Everything is going great. The Lord was with him and gave him success to you. And I go, I know about that. When your life blows up, no fault of your own, the Lord is still with you. So you have choice. I have a choice. When life interruptions happen, we could either go, this isn't fair. Why? When? I'm going to bail out on God. Or we could pause and go, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know when is it going to end. But I do know this. The same God of Joseph is the God of your life. He's the God of my life. Nothing. No one can derail God's purpose and care. Lean into him. Lean into him. Let's pray together. Come on.
worship team, if you guys come on up. Oh, church. Oh, you guys. How am The Lord was with Joseph. When things are going well and everything is working out, the Lord was with Joseph. Life blows up, nothing seems to go well. In plenty and in one. This God says, I am with you. I am for you. And I am work in you to do some things otherwise could not do. I don't know where you are, child of God. I don't know where you are today or where you walked in. But I pray that in the next moments as we pray and then the worship team leads us out, that you would sense his presence and his nearness. That you would sense his presence and his nearness. Because what you might need today not words what you might need today is to simply know that he sees you that he hears you and that he is with you Here's you.